It's the Paul's Picks Podcast. I'm David Schellenberg. Hello, Paul. Hello, David. So what's sitting on the dining room table today? So what we're going to do today, uh-huh. we're going to have a little fun today. Well, we always have fun, but this is going to be a real kind of cool thing. We're going to do Beaujolais and Beaujolais-style wines with different types of burgers. Burgers and Beaujolais. Burgers and Beaujolais. Okay, so you brought three Beaujolais. Uh, we also have three different burgers. Yep. Let's start with the wines. What are these wines? Let's get into the wines. Um, so the first wine is is a very typical, uh, traditional, I should say, not typical, but traditional style Beaujolais uh, from France. Okay. Uh, from the actual region of Beaujolais. And it's uh, from Bouchard et Nis et Fils Beaujolais Supérieur. Right. Now, uh, just... Quick clarification, Beaujolais is the region, okay? Uh, okay. Now, you have different styles of Beaujolais. You have different um, categories of Beaujolais, but that is basically the region, and the principal grape that they use is the Gamay grape. Okay, so let's just get that out of the way. So <laughs> region as in Chateauneuf-du-Pape. Yep, as in Bordeaux. Cham- or Bordeaux, yeah. Champagne. Yeah. It's not about the grape. It's about the region of it, France. Yeah. But when I think of, but, there's a but. There always is a but. Yes, when I think about uh, a lot of those other ones, they are classic blends. But this one is is primarily one grape? Yeah. Okay. It always has been. Yeah. There's always producers that are going to go a little off the grid. Yes. And add a little bit of Pinot Noir sometimes. As they should. Thank you for going off the grid. We love you. (laughs) But primarily for this show, for this, what we're doing right now. Yeah. Let's just say it's all gamay. Okay. Okay. So wine number one, what do you get here? The smells and aromas that I would get Bazooka Joe, Bubblegum, Candy Floss, Candy Apple. Um, It just, it's, it's a pleasant wine to nose. It's so comforting. Well, it's funny when you talk about like uh, Bazooka Joe and like nibs, is that what you said? Like, yeah, nibs is, it's, is it's, another one. It's a it's a mix of sweetness, yeah. which seems to be unusual for anything coming from France. Especially when you consider that when you taste this wine, yeah. it's actually bone dry. It is dry. <laughs> it's got great acidity, no tannin. Yep. Um and it just it's just it's such a beautiful wine to drink on its own. I I I like it. We're going to talk about the, our food later, yeah. but for right now, I love this type of food with just light cheeses, like goat uh, cheese. Okay, you know, a, a, a mild cheddar. Yeah, just a mild cheddar was fantastic with this um, fruit salad. Okay, fruit salad works fantastic with with this one and, and this wine here. Um, if you wanted to go to the the books yeah. and read the descriptors. Um, this follows suit perfectly. Absolutely now, fantastic. Now, for me, the first sip of this, I would not have picked this as an old world red wine. The, the taste that I get out of it and the way that you describe it is not any no. any kind of <laughs> old world red product whatsoever. No. But we'll get to that in a moment. So there's a second wine here. What's this one? So Louis Jadot, one of the biggest negociants um, in, in Beaujolais, in yeah. Burgundy, if you're getting into wine tasting and, and experiencing the wine world, negociants in France are very, very important to get familiar with. So what these people What's are- What's the word? A, a negociant, a negotiator. Okay. Uh, and basically what those companies are is they may own their own vineyards, what Louis Jadot does own yeah. quite a bit, um, and their own have their own wineries, but a lot of them, they basically- negotiate to buy wines from company and sell them under a certain name. Ah, uh, okay. 
Okay, so they're brokers, right? And in this case, Louis Jadot does everything. Big, big company uh, and a big, big player in Beaujolais, yeah. in Burgundy in general. What I liked about this one, all of a sudden we're getting a little bit more complex. Yes, the a lot of the initial fruit that we had in that first one. And if we know anything about these regions of France, they're not big places. This is probably two blocks away and tastes completely different. This particular one, you're getting a little bit more sort of sour cherry. It's not quite as fruity as our first one. No, not at all. Um, rhubarb pie, rhubarb strawberry pie. I'm getting a little bit, but not, again, not fruity fruity. No. Nope. Uh, I picked up for myself a little bit of sort of an anise or a leathery quality to the wine. Slightly, slight earthiness to it. Yeah. More of a medium body. So it's it's a little bit fuller on the palate, longer finish, and again, a beautiful example of a Beaujolais village style right. wine. Now, now, for me, who classically likes more of the New World sweeter wines, this was less of my wine than the first one. But I know what you mean about, um, you know, if you really want to lick some leather, this is a cheaper way to lick some leather. <laughs> you may you may deny it, but you know you love to do it. <laughs> okay, and what's, what's the third wine? Uh, the third wine is the Chateau de Charme St. David's Bench Vineyard Gamay Noir Droit which is a, a Gamay, but an offshoot of the traditional Gamay okay. grape that's grown right here by Chateau du Charme in uh, Ontario, right. Ontario, Canada. And um, Chateau du Charme is one of the most, one of the most um, recognizable vineyards. I think with their French influence being that their owner, Paul Bosk Sr., is actually the proprietor, and he's from Alsace right. originally. So there's a big, big French influence in Alsace. If you check a map, is just off of where Burgundy is. Yeah. So they're very close. Alsace Champagne and Burgundy are kind of interconnected, more or less. They will never admit that. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice it to say, I might get the guillotine for even suggesting <laughs> that. But they are very, very well connected and very in tune to their Ted Wall. Now, with this uh, this style of, and I'm going to say style of Beaujolais, but it is a Gamay Droit, um, much more earthier. Now, this wine tastes to me like an old world wine yeah, would taste like. Absolutely. Um, but it's a Gamay, not a Beaujolais, because it's not from France. It's from Ontario. No, Gamay is just uh, what they call a Vitis vinifera, which is a certain type of the top noble grape. Right. And Beaujolais is Beaujolais because it's from Beaujolais. And anything that comes outside of Beaujolais that's Gamay mm -hmm. is Gamay. Uh, I've been to Chateau de Charme. Like it's yeah. it's it's lovely. It's if, if you're ever in that part of Ontario, yeah. definitely go do the tour. And it, the owner lives across the street, mm -hmm. and there's lots of statues of galloping horses all over the place. And it's really quite a thing to see. And um, an amazing infrastructure for how they built it and how much wine they are capable of producing. They spared no expense. Of probably one of the most innovative wine. Companies, I'm going to say in Canada, yeah, because I mean they were buying, um, they were buying wind machines way before people were buying wind machines to control temperatures in vineyards. Right. Uh, the building of the the, the the their actual building their winery is 
oh, far superior to anything you could possibly imagine. It's a imagine. fortress. Oh, it, yeah. Like that, that thing can withstand anything that comes oh, along for a long time. I actually have a, a fond memory of sitting on the, uh, on the steps at Chateau de Charme with Paul Boss Sr., and we were smoking a cigar oh. and drinking uh, some of his uh, Al- Alsatian style. I'm going to say yeah. Riesling, and we were watching because he actually breeds Arabian horses across the street where he lives. Where he lives, yes, yeah, and it was it was just freaking amazing, just awesome. Now, how is uh, New World Ontario able to produce such an old world taste? Philosophies, okay. Philosophies. Yeah, they, they, it's not about soil. It's not about growing conditions. It's just the oh, it, it's it's very much part of that. The philosophy and that that falls into the philosophies is that Ontario's climate is quite conducive to that of Burgundy and Alsace. In other words, uh, they deal with cooler temperatures. They deal with certain subsoils and soils, topsoils. So they plant grapes that, for example, in in Burgundy, um, you're not going to see Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon and, and, and things like that because it's just not, it's not conducive. And Paul Boss Sr. and his, his sons and his crew, they realize that coming in. They're going to do Gamay. They're going to do Pinot Noir, which right. they do in Burgundy. They're going to grow Riesling, which they do phenomenally well in Alsace. Grapes like that, because they know with their mentality coming from France, they bring the old world philosophy into a new world area that's basically a younger version of where they came from originally. Right. right and that, right. that's the thinking. That's the smart way of thinking. I've always been a um, massive supporter of Ontario wines and, and Canadian wines in general, but I don't think we should be growing Zinfandel no, in Ontario. No, just because of growing. The season's too short. Yeah, it's too short. There's too many variables. Or, or trying to jump on a bandwagon by... Some producers, not naming, but some producers thought when Shiraz was taking off, well, we got to plant Shiraz. It's not conducive. Uh, right. It's not conducive. So instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, look at what you're working with, like they did at Chateau de Charme, and say, let's perfect it for this growing area, mm-hmm. even though France is probably... 400 years ahead of us yeah. we'll just use we'll, we're gonna we're gonna take what we've learned in france yeah. and bring it to here in right. a new world as you said environment right now in addition to these three bottles of wine there's three burgers sitting Ooh. here one of them is a chicken burger with uh pesto and pickles or rather yep. salty kind of chicken burger one of them is a basic black angus beef burger lettuce tomato onion on it uh, and then a Beyond Meat Burger. Yes. Because that's the way it is with a little mayo and pico de gallo. So now what do these three burgers do when they meet these three wines? I thought the the two French wines that we tried, the two Beaujolais wines that we tried, I thought worked phenomenally well with basically all three, but mostly with, um, for me anyway, for the chicken and the Angus burger for me that just worked so well. With what? The chicken and the Angus burger with the old world? With the old world, right. the Beaujolais style wines. I thought the Gamay Trois from Ontario was really, really good. Yeah. Uh, overall, it, it fit the bill. I just, I didn't particularly enjoy it with the chicken burger so, so much. Yeah. It wasn't bad. 
Uh, but with the meatless burger and the Angus, I thought it really elevated the wine. Thought it worked great. For me, the, the chicken with the France wines worked really well. Okay. And then the real beef and the pretend beef worked better <laughs> with the Ontario. And and I found that sort of intriguing because the two French wines that we had, we both sort of agreed were a new world flavor. Mm-hmm. And then the wine that's actually from the New World, Ontario, had an old world flavor. So mm. what is it about the the chicken and the pickles that worked? And what is it about beef uh, that works with the other one? So if you went by the majority of what the books say as yeah. far as wine and food pairings, technically none of these wines should have worked with anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> but... You have to remember a couple of things. Number one, your palate. Number two, you have to look at the way that the burgers were dressed and cooked. Very simply. There's nothing crazy and about that, these particular burgers. You just said it. Oh, did I? You oh, just oops, said sorry, it. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, take that no, away. No, 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 no. That, and that's the thing. You don't have to put a shovel full of pesto on a burger to make a pesto chicken burger. Right. I mean, that that's not... The idea is to have a little bit of condiments on it, but not have it take away from the primary taste, whether it's chicken, meatless, or, you know, a a beef burger. Right. Okay. And now I have to say at this point, we didn't additionally add anything to these burgers. No, thought about adding, there's no ketchup on these burgers, there's no barbecue sauce, um, there's no mayo. Like these are pretty simple burgers. Mustard's a killer for wine, by oh, the way. Oh, is it really? Yeah. And I know aioli is big right now, and, yeah. and it's very popular. I love aioli. I, I, I'm a big fan, too, uh, so, uh, especially for my fries for me. Yes. I, I oh, really, really love If that. I can find something, I will dip it in aioli. Absolutely. <laughs> but on wines, whether they're heavy-bodied or these style, um, they can wreak havoc. So yeah. you got to be very conscious of that. Like you've got to look at all aspects when you're doing wine and food pairing. It doesn't stop with what you see on the menu. Well, how did you cook the chicken? What type of cut right. did you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many factors. Um, but the bottom line of all that, like for myself, I make a, a wine and food pairing assessment or judgment based on what I've tried and tasted. And then I listen and I think, okay, this I think should work. I, and now underline, I think it should work, <laughs> okay? Um, it doesn't always, but it should work. But again, your palate's going to be completely different on, on everything. Another thing that's important, too, with these wines, these styles of wine, is how they're served. Okay. you got to have these wines chilled. Really? Yeah. Because these are... These are red wines in every sense of the word. Um, And red wines we know are supposed to be cellar temperature. So a degree or two below room temperature, whatever you consider room temperature to be. Mm -hmm. But you say even more chilled. I'd say with these styles of wine, 13 to 17 degrees would be ideal. Okay, yeah. So that would be approximately, and again, this is a variable, Anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half in your fridge. Right. Or like we did with a few of these wines, um, 20 minutes-ish in the freezer. Yes, admittedly, that is because it's July and everything's hot and Somehow they're everything that tastes tastes a little bit better when it comes out of the the freezer or the fridge. Well, here's another bonus of these style of wines is that if... You're you're doing the summer 
thing in your outdoors and you're yeah. looking for a red wine, I love my red wine. I mean, I love it. And I, I'm like you. I, I like a heavier bodied style wine. By right. and large, that's what I like to drink. But when it's 27 to 33 degrees outside and I'm at a picnic table, even if I'm under a tree, uh, a little harder to swallow. So these wines, there is no shame in putting these any, any of these three wines in a bucket with yeah. ice and water yeah. and keep them chilled. And here's a little trick. Don't pour full glasses if you're. If yes. You, don't do that. It's different in, in a in a if you're in a restaurant or an open bar or something. When yeah. when uh, the server comes by, you got to get everything you can at that moment. When you're at home or at a patio, the bottle is safe. You're yeah. going to finish that bottle anyways. Yeah. yeah, keep it cool. Yeah, and I mean, we all have that Uncle Joe that uh, wants the most wine he can get, so he's going to top up his glass right to the rim yeah. <laughs> by outside. But with this. No, I mean, it's just better to pour half glasses and just keep going back to the wine. will stay fresher, and it's a cooler, more refreshing drink. Mm-hmm. And it goes with a lot of stuff. Like, I mean, we're talking about burgers, but um, you're looking for a simpler wine that maybe is more versatile for a wider range of foods. This style of wine, again, I say style, Beaujolais style of wine is much more versatile because you can bring it through anything from appetizer through the main course. Yeah. And for the most part, as we've proven here, we've had white meat, yep. uh, beef, yep. and we've had vegan or beef lists. Yep. Uh, you know, somehow each of these wines have added or at least worked well with what we ate. Now, yes, I did want to go back to that to spend a little bit more time with the pairing. I I was surprised with the chicken and the two wines from France. The chicken did take away some of that super sweetness. It's it's not that the wine still wasn't sweet, but that kind of candy floss, bubblegum flavor, Bazooka Joe flavor <laughs> was gone. And in many ways, it tasted more like I would expect in an old world red. And that pesto is is what would have taken that away. Uh, okay. And I think if if we had a uh, aioli, as we were talking about, yep. with the garlic and everything, if we had to use that and mustards and, and that type of thing, I, I'm going to stick myself out there and say it probably would have wrecked the wine. Oh, really? Right? Yeah. Um, and then again, it was interesting with both the beef and the pretend beef, you yeah. know, to, to oversimplify it, with the one that would have been the classic French red, it did what I've what a lot of us have seen with the French red. When you have beef with an old world red, the barnyardy niche disappears yeah, and it really yeah. smooths out. Yeah. Um, so maybe some of the taste disappears, but the overall experience is just smooth. So you're, you lose some of the wine, but what then the wine does to the meal accentuates possibly the spices or the charring or, yeah. or, or how the, the food was prepared. So you're not really losing the wine. You're just asking it to be a little bit different. Right. Okay. That's all. Now, let's go to Beaujolais for a little bit. Um, Beaujolais is a region of France. We covered that already. Yep. But are there different types of Beaujolais? 
There are actually quite a bit. Um, Even on the table here, one of them says Beaujolais Superior, <laughs> uh, and I've seen Beaujolais Nouveau somewhere. Yeah. Is is there a difference in all this? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So the simplest one to make and the one that is, um, I guess, the most recognizable yeah. of Beaujolais is Beaujolais Nouveau. Okay. Uh, for us in North America, it was one of the styles of wine that sort of kick-started North America's curiosity to European wines. Why? It's easy to drink. At the time, yeah. it was affordable. At the time. <laughs> um, and it, it's probably one of the easiest ways to produce Beaujolais. Yeah. So Beaujolais is Gamay. Yeah. And when we were talking about the other ones earlier, like a Chateau Neuf de Pop is a blend of blend, stuff. Yeah. But but when you see Beaujolais, is that always a gamay? A gamay? From France, yes. Okay. From France, yes. Now So it's a different way of what? Picking it? No, and what they do is or what a, a big tradition in France, from what I was told from uh George Dubeff, yeah. um, basically what happened was there's a, a process called carbonic ma- maceration. We won't get through the whole technical thing of that, but basically it's a way to speed up wine aging. Mm. So what they would do is they'd do an early harvest to see how the grapes were doing, and they'd make each company that was in Beaujolais would make this early harvest-style wine. So it's basically forcing the wine to age quickly using carbon dioxide, okay? okay? And then what they do... This is where I love them. Is it's also a huge excuse to have a great big party. Ah. <laughs> and from all the villages aside, because again, and, and as you mentioned, uh, Beaujolais is not that that big of an area. It's it really comparatively you could fit it easily inside of Ontario where we live, but it, it's a very small region. Suffice it to say. Anyway, what they do is they'd get together and they try what it was kind of first reference to as a first press wine to see how the the vintage was going so they'd have a great big party it took them less than three four days to make the wine like Mm. think about that just for a second make the wine to make the wine have it bottled or in that case put into jugs yeah and people would just be trying everybody else how's how how did yours turn out and it turned into a party well when that was really popular especially was in the 1960s, 1970s. Hence, North American people were discovering themselves at that time and backpacking through Europe. And as the story goes, people would basically fall ass backwards into Beaujolais during this period of time when they were trying the Nouveau wines, paying this great big party, and, and word got out, and everybody was like flocking there to be part of that festival, which hmm. it turned into. Well... Some of the people that were there going, I think we're missing the boat on something here. <laughs> we can make the wine basically the cheapest possible way you can make a wine, market it. Mm-hmm. The bottles and the labels cost more than what's in the bottle and ship it out. No. Yeah. And is that is what we call what? Nouveau. Beaujolais Nouveau. Well, back in the late 70s and early 80s, people in here in Canada used to line up across the block for it. Right. And because it could only be served, and here's another thing why they were so smart, create a buzz, create a demand. We all know about that. 
Got to create a demand for a product. Why is there a line outside this bar and yeah. nobody's inside? <laughs> well, what they do is they'd say that you can only sell it on the third Thursday of November at 11 a.m. Mm. And people would buy it by the droves. Problem is, we didn't know better at that time. Beaujolais mm-hmm. should be drunk within minimum six months, maximum one year of purchase. But people were in, in North America were buying it to sell her. Doesn't work like Doesn't that. Doesn't work. <laughs> so anyway, so that's nouveau. So then we go to that's all very unusual for a France wine. Like a, someone that, was smart by today's standards. If you look at how things are marketed, yeah. the person who ever came up with that was a genius. Like really. Well, even because France wines, I always sort of assume they're they're following some recipe that's three hundred years old. Yeah, and someone just found a glitch in the system. It uh, just takes that one person. Okay, that's Nouveau. So, and then you go from there, you go from that to Beaujolais, then Beaujolais Village, then Beaujolais Supérieur, and then Beaujolais Cru. In a nutshell, <laughs> as you move up in the degrees, yeah. the grapes for any of those classifications have to be planted in certain designated areas uh-huh. and vinified in certain specific ways and... yes have to have certain alcohol degrees and can't be acidified or have sugar added to them in, in depending on the status that you have. The top, top line Beaujolais, the Cru, there's only 10 of them, only 10 areas in Beaujolais that can produce them. They're the most strict. They're the most um, watched on and tested. And those Beaujolais styles of wine actually can stay in your cellar for three to five years. Three to five years, that's still nothing. The grape itself is not made, though. You have to remember, for a grape to have a red uh, uh, wine grape variety, because that's what we're talking about, has to have or be able to produce enough tannin, because that's the, the natural preservative that's found in the wine. Gamay doesn't have that, and you're not allowed to. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, okay. You can't add, like, you know how you, well, you can add fake tannins to wine? Yes. You're not allowed to do that, especially when you move up in the ladder. Now, so Beaujolais Superior is one of the higher ones? It's it's about the middle of the pack. Beaujolais Village and Beaujolais Superior is that it has to have a one degree alcohol level higher so they're allowed. Oh, it's with the alcohol yeah. level. Okay. They're allowed to add. Whee! Yeah. <laughs> Yay. God love you, Beaujolais. Super Um, They're allowed to add, actually, uh, sugar to boost up. For the fermentation. Up, yeah, for the fermentation. So it's, it's not sugar that you would taste, really? No, 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 no. no. It's, it's just, it's just to, to, so that when the yeast and all, and, and all the components combine together, it'll just boost up naturally. The alcohol. Right. Because of the three bottles that we have, I have to say the Beaujolais Superior is my favorite of them, and it just happens to be the cheapest of them. Yeah, and and that, again, goes to the point that price doesn't necessarily dictate the quality or your happiness of the taste of the bottle. Yeah, quality is such a, such a subjective word. Absolutely. As is my taste. And somehow or other, I don't know how I'm able to pick the cheap one, but that just makes me happier. <laughs> and your pocketbook. And <laughs> you know what? I've, I've conducted and been part of 
in an enormous amount of blind tastings yeah. over the years. And honestly, sitting there with trade representatives, sommeliers, uh, you name it, producers, very, very few people can actually pick out which bottle was the most expensive. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. that good. All right, Paul Carrier, three different Beaujolais, three different burgers, and of course, I think you know, endless advice is try them all. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to lose. That is Paul Carrier. I'm David Schoenberg. This has been Paul's Picks. Paul's Picks.